Hey, everybody. This is the Conquering Columbus podcast, and my name is Mike. I'm one of your hosts here on the show. Hope you're all having a wonderful day or night or, you know, whatever time you're listening to this ad. So today on the show, we've got a good friend of ours joining us, Kwame Christian. He's been on the show before. He's the host of the Negotiate Anything podcast, which if you guys haven't checked it out yet, definitely go check it out. It's one of the top podcasts on negotiation on any app. And he's also the head of the American Negotiation Institute. And as well, he is, happens to be Conquering Columbus's lawyer. So uh, we've known Kwame for a while now, and getting the chance to talk to him is always enjoyable. And this conversation is no exception. We talk about how to have difficult conversations and a lot of other things on the show today. I definitely think you're going to learn a lot. And as always, we hope you enjoy it. We'll talk to you here in a second. This is... Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Today on the show, Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that. Live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Olman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24-7, 365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. And today on the show, we are joined once again by our friend Kwame Christian. And uh, for those of you who don't know Kwame, he's the director of the American Negotiation Institute, subject matter expert in the field of negotiation and conflict resolution, best-selling author and podcast host, among many other impressive feats. Uh, also, Conquering Columbus's lawyer. So, you know, that's uh, that's the biggest one on his list. He also, like I mentioned, he runs his own podcast, Negotiate Anything, which we would highly recommend checking out if you're a fan of podcasts or if you want to learn more about negotiation and discussing challenging subjects. We're excited to have Kwame on today to talk about life, discussing difficult topics in a polarized world and everything in between. Welcome back to the show, Kwame. Hey, guys. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really exciting to have you here, man. And uh, maybe just start with just a quick background for people who don't know you. Yeah, so uh, so I'm a lawyer by trade, um, but I'm really passionate about this negotiation and conflict resolution stuff. And um, with the, the company, the American Negotiation Institute, our motto is the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. So our goal is to help people with the difficult conversations that they're having. So not just business negotiations, but life in general, just to help you to enhance your life, not just business. Mm-hmm. Not mm -hmm. to mention Father of Kai, who I, I watched the video you the posted. The best Instagram stories in town. I, yeah, <laughs> that, that, I don't know I don't know if the video was on LinkedIn. It might have been on LinkedIn. It was you playing catch with him, and he had, I think he had a helmet on, and you were acting like you were about to toss him. He was literally the size of the football. He might have been a full, like, eight Well, then you were old. actually playing catch with him. So, yeah, it was the flashback yes. one. That one was funny. Yeah, that was cool. Because for the longest time, man, all I wanted to do, I just wanted to play catch with my son. So he was like, what? He was a blob at that stage. And I was that overprotective parent who gave him that baby helmet. I'm like, he keeps on tipping over. Got to protect the brain. He, he wasn't ready at that time. But but now, now at four years old, he can play catch with minimal competence, which is all I need. Yeah, <laughs> now it's a go. lot of fun. Well, and you know, I didn't say it before the interview, but I'm going to say it on the record. You look like you've been bulking up, man. I was yeah. going to say that when he walked in, but you know, I didn't want right. to come on too strong for the interview, you know, and make you walk right out. Now you're hooked. You got to stay. No, you're stuck now. You can't you. leave. But yeah, you look like you've been bulking up, man. So I appreciate it. In in these times, that's difficult because, you know, a lot of gyms aren't open. So I'm impressed. But all right, now that we've gone completely off script and off topic, <laughs> uh, we're going to go back to that outline that Kwame didn't read. Um, so one thing that we noticed was Negotiate Anything is actually now part of the ACAST network. ACAST, did I say mm -hmm. that right? Yep, that's right. Uh, so how'd that come about and, and what's What's that been like so far? Yeah, I tell you, with business, it's just all about relationships. So I had a friend who was on the ACAST network and she put me in touch and, and that was it. And it's really, really exciting. They are 
they are a, a very hands-on partner. So I thought it was just going to be the monetization. Hey, you put ads on my show. Cool. That's that's fine. Um, but they're actually helping us to kind of strategize the approach. And so a couple things just from the beginning, before we even posted an episode with them, they said, hey, your logo's boring. <laughs> You need to change your logo. I'm like, okay, great. And they said, yeah, you need to have um, just a, a greater diversity of guests because if you really want to grow, keeping it really niche on business is not the way to do it. So be willing to step outside and do more. And so I, we've we've had really cool guests like relationship therapists, people who help you with meditation, all sorts of stuff. Um, but now I'm really going to try to expand it because everybody Everybody around the world has difficult conversations. So let's get the perspectives of all sorts of cool people and, and really expand. So it's, it's really cool. I think it's cool about the approach that you've taken, or at least that it seems that you've taken from the outside, is you've heard, you know, the the philosophy and approach that you can, you're selling every day in life. And when people actually start to learn about selling at a deep level, they realize, yeah, I kind of am. And whether it's a conversation on where to go to dinner at night, et cetera. And, and you've taken that same twist on negotiating. And I think that now people are starting to realize, wow, like you, you really can and should be almost negotiating every aspect of your life. And you're doing it to some extent. It almost seems like, but you might not be winning all of them. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it, it's not a matter of whether or not we negotiate. It's just a question of whether we do it well. Mm-hmm. So we're doing it anyway. Right. <laughs> so, so let's step the game up. Well, and choosing not to negotiate is, in fact, a negotiation tactic, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Right. So like example from personal life where we go to dinner tonight. Well, I'm not going to negotiate that. I'm not turning in my chips for that particular (laughs) topic. So whatever we want to go, that's great. But, you know, down the road, there's going to be something that comes up and that's when I say, okay, I do want to negotiate this one, right? So I think giving giving and take, right? That's You you think of it just as like give and take, but really it's negotiation. Absolutely. Yeah. Think about it in terms of political capital. So like a politician would say, hey, I'm not going to expend my political capital on this bill because I really care about this bill. Mm -hmm. Now bring it back to our lives again. Now we can be a little bit more intentional about it, not because we're trying to take advantage of people, but we're just being more strategic about the way we navigate the world. And so we say, yep, I'm not I'm not going to use my, my chips at this point. But then when it's really time, I could say, hey, you remember in the past when I let you have this? can we have this, you know, (laughs) so you can get a little bit more of what you want. But I think the relationship side is a big thing too, Mm -hmm. because negotiation isn't just about collecting value. It's about deepening relationships through the process as well. And so when you start thinking about life as a negotiation, everything gets better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so Acast, are they representing obviously a broad list of podcasts and are they all focused on negotiation? What is their whole thing? Yeah, I'm one of their, they, they don't have very many business focused shows. And so they want to expand in that direction too. And so um, they, they have a lot of the, like the lifestyle type of podcasts. They're out of, um, I think Sweden is where they're from. So they have a lot of European shows. So uh, the BBC, The Guardian, um, yeah, I think there's another one out there uh, that's really popular. Oh, PBS NewsHour is on there on them there too. So so it's cool to to be one of the kind of newer business focused shows, especially coming in America for an international network. It's pretty fun. So this act is like a this is probably a poor terminology, but like a management service organization for podcasts, basically. So they're providing you insight on branding and strategy and just helping you monetize it through landing sponsors. That's a great way to think about it, actually. <laughs> that, that, that makes a lot of sense. He's got an MBA. Yeah. So, you know, he thinks about it that in the makes right way. Sense. The guy who edits our podcast can just replay that and like loop for like the next 15 minutes. <laughs> the, Josh, the one where I say guy. he's got, yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, but that's exactly what it is because uh, it's kind of like a collective approach because me trying to go out and get sponsors just as an indie show, it's, it's tough. Um, so tough, in fact, that I said, screw it, I'm not going to do it, <laughs> you know? But then they say, hey, we can collectively get you a number of different spot sponsors. We just take a piece of it. I said, well, you know, that's great because right now I'm getting zero. So let, let's do it. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, a little give take and uh, you don't have to worry about it. Our first sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So let's talk about something a little more serious here. You know, and you talked about it on one of your recent podcasts. You had a two-part episode talking about race and how to talk about race. But as everyone is aware, 
race, racism, and the history of racism in America is a bit of a hot topic right now. I mean, everybody, everybody's talking about it as we should be. So one of the things that I think happens a lot is if you have these conversations with people, especially when you're on different sides of the argument, they often turn into from argument to name calling and furious anger. So how can people have these conversations without devolving into that? Yeah, it's tough. And the thing that's been really refreshing about kind of getting back into this game about civil rights type of discussions is that when we think about it in terms of strategy, communication strategy, conflict resolution, persuasion, all of that, the fundamentals are the same. The only thing that's different is that the topic is just highly, highly emotional mm -hmm. because it deals with the identity, just personal identity, identity of others, deals with how we want the world to look like versus what it actually does look like and coming to terms with that discrepancy, it's really tough. And so when we're having these conversations, I think the the closer we hold firm to like the principles of negotiation and conflict resolution, the better it'll be. Um, but it's been, it's been really interesting because I have a background in civil rights. Mm -hmm. So coming out of uh, law school after getting my master of public policy, I, I focus on doing civil rights work, working with police officers, um, lawyers, and public health uh, professionals talking about inequity there. And it burnt me out just completely emotionally just burnt me out. I, I, I went as far as to stop looking at the news for over a calendar year, probably the happiest I've ever been, <laughs> to be honest. Anybody who posted anything politically that was either in line with what I believed in or against what I believed in, didn't matter, didn't want to hear it, unfollowed everybody, including Whitney Christian, my wife. So I was like, I am all the way out of this game. But um, with the most recent situation, I was, again, trying to use my ostrich technique, avoiding it, just say, okay, let's just focus on not talking about this. But Whitney, she said, listen, you have this motto, um, the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And in your book and in your TED Talk, you're always telling people not to avoid these difficult conversations. You're modeling the behavior that you tell people not to do. So how can you consider yourself a leader? And I said, well, damn. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good wife right there. She's yeah. calling you out. But man, that's, I mean, that's exactly what you need from someone who's your partner. Exactly. Exactly. And she did it in a loving way, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that was important. And so I, I did this virtual town hall. I said on a Wednesday and I announced it and I said, hey, I'm going to do this, how to have, have difficult conversations about race. And honestly, guys, I was just saying, I'm going to check my box. I did my good deed. Then I can get back to, to business where it's mm -hmm. safe and fun. And um, then after three days of that light promotion, it blew up. Over a thousand people registered. Um, it was it led to being featured on CNBC, Forbes, and USA Today. People are just craving that information. Not so much just the race issue, mm -hmm. but how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Because everybody's talking about it. And those who aren't talking about it are thinking about it. But how do we actually converse? Because people can see the risks of having the conversation um, poorly, very clearly. So they say, I'm not going to engage. So it's been cool coming back into that and using that as a service offering for the business as well, just helping people have the conversation. So I think, I think that, one, that is one thing that's been kind of a struggle with the whole dynamic is that part of it feels like from the outside, it's changed from the intent behind the dialogue that people are having to critiquing and criticizing the semantics of what you're saying, even though at the end of the day, both people are working towards the same thing, or they really have the same deep heart feelings about, about what they're talking about. But yet people are still fighting each other over it. So as you look at the fundamentals that you're talking about and the ones that are rooted in negotiation that help us with these conversations, like what are those fundamentals and how do they help? Yeah, I think even even taking it a step back from the fundamentals, if you think about mindset too, I think that's a really great place to start because one of the one of my favorite parts of the book um, is a section called the benefit of the benefit of the doubt. And a lot of times what we do is we try to be the, the mind police <laughs> and mm -hmm. figure out what somebody's intent is. That's problematic. I mean, most people don't even have a full understanding of what their intent is because we're operating on a subconscious level. And then we just say things because that's how we feel. But we don't know why, <laughs> why we say things. And so I say, give people the benefit of the doubt, assume the best of intentions. And instead of trying to police the way people say things, use it as an educational opportunity. Okay, ask some questions understand their perspective, even if you don't agree, and then you can work together. Because in these situations, my assumption is that everybody that we're having these conversations with, ultimately, to a certain extent, wants the world to be fair and equitable, whatever that means to them. 
And so if we can help people to understand what the situation really is, then we can start to move toward that common goal of, of equity. But I think we were just so focused on seeing somebody else as the other, whatever that happens to be, that we approach it as an argument versus an opportunity to connect. A hundred percent agree. And I think that that ties well into something that I was going to ask about, which is I think one of the biggest things that hampers these conversations is defensiveness, especially, I mean, especially from white people, we get really defensive because- I'm not a racist and I don't want to talk about this. I'm not touching that with a 45 and a half foot pole, right? <laughs> um, but I think that on both sides, you have to, and the other thing that happens is white people assume that anytime someone tries to get them into this conversation, that they're going, like your intent is to accuse me of being a racist, right? But that's not the case either. We just want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that a hundred percent, you've got to, you've got to assume that benefit of the doubt. And how can, I mean, is that one way to lower that defensiveness, but how can we continue to lower that barrier, which I think is the barrier is defensiveness and not wanting to confront those things inside yourself, right. Mm -hmm. Or inside the world. I think part of it too, though. So like I, when I'm honest with myself and others about it, I think that I don't want to talk about it sometimes because I don't want to say something wrong or have it be misinterpreted. Now, do I do I feel and know deep heart what my intent is and how I feel about the situation? I think I do. Um, and hopefully I express that in who I am and what I represent, but I don't know if I can articulate it in a way where others will find it palatable. And, and if I step up or misstep or say something wrong, it's like, you know, I can't backtrack out of that. So- yeah. It becomes difficult. It's tough. So so let's talk about the defensiveness, but also what you said just now, Josh, about the fear that comes along with it, because that's legitimate. I think in, in America, probably one of the worst things to be called is a racist. And if you're called a racist, almost by definition, you have to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't you can't accept that. Because if you accept that, then it's like, where, I mean, where do I find acceptance in this world, right? And so it's natural and it's understandable that you're going to feel defensive. And so I think about when I was uh, teaching Kai how to ride a bike, one of the first things I taught him, I told him before we even got there, again, going back to the mindset thing was, hey, Kai, you're going to fall. You're definitely going to fall. And it will certainly hurt. And you're probably going to get a few more scars after this, but it's part of the process. It needs to happen. And if you fall, that's actually a good thing. And so then when it happened, he wasn't as scared, right? And so he it helped him to push through. And so bringing it to this type of conversation, what I suggest people do is when, when you have that fear, like you said, Josh, I would say, listen, I'm not well-versed in this at all. And I want to be a good ally. I'm not exactly sure how to do this. So as we talk about this, I can almost guarantee you <laughs> I'm going to say something offensive mm -hmm. and I want you to correct me if that happens. And so then when you do say that thing that's offensive, then the person doesn't really take it, take it out on you. They, they say, oh, he told me, he told yep. me he was, this was going to happen. And now it's not as scary for either party. And it sets that level intent, right? It sets from the outstart what your intent is, right? And people know. Exactly. I mean, it's like setting the ground rules for the conversation, which I think is important whenever you're talking about difficult subjects. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so think about, again, going to the defensiveness mm -hmm. thing, right? Completely natural response because nobody wants to accept that label of, of racist potentially. That's very scary. And so whenever it seems as though that's going to happen, we say, hey, listen, that wasn't my intention, blah, blah, blah. And we focus it on us. So for the other person who's saying, hey, this, this hurt me or this had a negative impact, what they hear is, wow there's a problem here. It hurt people around you. And your first concern is your appearance. That's what they're, uh, that's, that's what they hear. Mm -hmm. And so now they get really upset and now we just go into a downward spiral. And so it's, it's a really tough situation, but I think we have to take it as a learning opportunity. And here's an example. So for the listeners, if you don't know, I am a black man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so just throwing that out I there. I did forget we were on audio for a second. Yeah, we never, never announced that. Huh? Just need to throw it out there. So with my show, uh, a listener reached out and said, hey, Kwame, just a heads up. You need to work on the diversity on your show. And I was like, wait a second. And so I looked back <laughs> at the roster of guests and I said, there are a lot of white dudes here. That's incredible. So I didn't have very much racial diversity or gender diversity. It's because I'm here in Columbus, Ohio. The majority of my professional friends are white, males, right? And then in alternative dispute resolution, so negotiation, mediation, it's a very male-dominated field as well. And so just because of the people that I'm connected with and the people who reach out to me to be on the show, I was running into a diversity problem. Would you say I'm racist? 
I think not, <laughs> right? But instead of saying, no, that wasn't my, <laughs> my intent, I said, you revealed something to me that was a blind spot. We all have blind spots. Mm -hmm. And so instead of getting defensive, you, I look at it in terms of gratitude. I need to know where these blind spots are. So I usually, if we can turn that defensiveness into gratitude and say, first of all, before we even get into the content of this conversation, thank you for bringing this to my attention because I didn't see it. And mm -hmm. just that little thing is going to change the whole tenor of the conversation. Yeah. How much of that do you think is rooted in, in the person delivering the message and their desire to uh, antagonize? Is that the right word that I'm using? Uh, antagonize would be, yeah, I think so. Nice. I'm not a big word guy. Antagonize or or drive hate or like, what if they said that because they wanted to make you angry or feel bad about yourself? And then I feel like that's when defensiveness starts and you go, you kind of piddle paddle this back and forth. Yeah. And again, this is where the, the benefit of the benefit of the doubt becomes really interesting mm -hmm. because we don't give people the benefit of the doubt for their sake. We give people the benefit of the doubt for our sake. Right. Because I know when it comes to my ability to handle myself in a difficult conversation, I perform better when I'm in a positive mood, at least neutral to positive. But when it goes negative, I'm not thinking clearly. That's just the way the brain works. Mm -hmm. We're utilizing our limbic system, the amygdala. And it's it's almost like, a, it, not almost like, it's a situation where the more emotional you get, the less clearly you're thinking. And so even if I really, even if, all of the evidence is is operating in favor of the fact that this person is trying to antagonize me. I am going to stay relentlessly positive and say, yeah, they're trying their best right now. That's always the assumption. Sometimes people's best isn't very good, <laughs> but I say they're trying their best right now under the circumstances. And just that shift in mentality helps me to perform and stick to these rules that, that, we, that we're gonna talk about. Our next sponsor is the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is a local nonprofit that's committed to helping their partners build upon their strengths. They turn visions of what if into sustainable resources for the community. There's there's another topic. So I was listening to that that podcast you put out, and I think it was just the playover of the town hall. And one of the listeners asked about who you should be having these conversations with and how to have, and you started talking about, you know, hey, you can't just go out on the street and talk to a stranger about this, right? Uh, you got to start with the people in your inner circle. Can you talk a little more about that and, and what you mean by that? Yeah, we have to be targeted. We have to be really targeted in our approach. I mean, think about it just from a, a business perspective. And I think when you think about it from a business perspective, it helps you to be a lot more strategic about the way you interact. Because if you have, a, if you're selling cars or something, you just don't run up to random people on the street. Hey, you want to buy a car? It's like, who are you? You don't know about my car situation, <laughs> right? That'd be weird. And so we have to start with some kind of relationship. That's the first thing. But also when we think about trying to reach an, uh, a future that has equity, right? We have to be a little bit targeted in our approach as it relates to combating structural racism, because I think that's the thing that people often miss. We focus on racism in terms of somebody being mean to somebody else because of their race. That's not the biggest issue we have. The biggest issue we have are the, the structures and institutions that we have that, for whatever reason, are built in a way that favor one party over the other. Right. And and we can we can go through kind of examples like that where it becomes really clear. And it's not it's really interesting that it's kind of posed as a, a radical type of idea. It is really not that <laughs> that crazy. The the best one I can think of is have you read Freakonomics? Yes, a long time ago though. The Freakonomics example where they talk about if if you have a name, if your name is LaMichael versus Michael, you're far less likely to get interviews, even if you have the exact same resume and turn it in. Absolutely. And there's tons of data like that out there. What about people who just say, no, the data is manipulated? Like, yeah. how do you handle that conversation? Well, the thing is, in, in those types of situations, I think um, if, if they're not going to respect the data, um, one thing you have to figure out is what is a piece of data that they would respect? Like, what do you respect, right? And if they, if, based on their answer, you can tell them, you can tell whether or not the person is persuadable. And again, we have to allocate resources in places where it'll be best used. Sometimes somebody's just for too far gone. We have to let them go. Strategically, we have to work around them or go or take a more combative approach. And when I say combative, I don't mean I'm going to argue because that's usually not effective at all. Um, then if it's like within a workplace, for example, 
then it might have to be a lawsuit, something like that, right? But I'm a diplomacy first type of guy. And then the other thing is just trying to figure out where it is that they they stand on this situation. Because a lot of times it's an emotional type of response, not a substantive type of response. And with the, the compassionate curiosity framework that I talk about, it helps you to determine the difference between an emotional response and a substantive response. Because if I try to respond with data to some something that's actually an emotional issue, it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's the thing. And then also stories help. So for instance, people might just say, well, stop complaining. This is America, home of the brave, land of the free. Everybody's treated equally, right? Just work harder, get some degrees. So I'm somebody who got a, got a couple of degrees. So let's look at my story. So Ohio State undergrad, best school in the state, psychology degree, a psychology degree in um, undergrad, I think is like top three or something like that in, in, or 12 in the world for psychology is really good. Then minor in Spanish so I can speak Spanish and foundations of law as another minor. Then law school at the best law school in the state. And then uh, master of public policy, number 14 in the nation. Okay, cool. I was very engaged in school, solid grades, not great, but good enough, you know, like B plus, A minus average. And so the question that I ask people is I put up my resume and I say, when I was transitioning from the work experience that I had into trying to get into private practice, how many job interviews do you think I got? Because I applied to 30 or so jobs. How many job interviews do you think I got? I would expect, so if I had to, just knowing you and based on that resume, I would say you had to get at least 10 to 15. Yeah. I got zero until one of my professors, who's the director of the Alternative Dispute Resolution Program at OSU, which happens to be the number one ADR program in the state, says, hey, Kwame won a bunch of negotiation competitions at OSU. He won the regional negotiation competition and semifinals at nationals. You should give him a shot. And one of my mentors, who was a, was a former attorney general of the state of Ohio, said, hey, you should give Kwame a shot. That's when I got an interview. Man. One. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Please. So the thing is, the timeline for me starting my own practice and then starting the American Negotiation Institute was greatly accelerated. I started it, started it at 27, not because I wanted to, but because I had to. Like my strategy was to start that around 35, but I didn't have a choice. And the thing is, when it comes to entrepreneurship, not everybody's cut out for entrepreneurship, not in terms of an I'm better than you type of thing, but some people are better suited for jobs and prefer that type of structure. So if I was one of those those people who did not, who genuinely did not want to do entrepreneurship, then what was my alternative? Go into like nonprofit work or, or, or something like that, that where it wasn't as competitive? So it's, it's real, you know? And so thinking about it from a, like a meritocracy type of thing doesn't address those situations where you have structural issues and then issues of bias. Mm-hmm. Because if you, th- if you think about it, if you think about like looking into the hearts and minds of the people who made those decisions, do you think they're racists? No. Do they think they're racist? No, I don't think they're racist. But the thing is, bias is real. And it it shapes our decisions in ways that we don't fully understand and appreciate unless you're educated in it. Yeah. I think the hardest part is you, you're really not going to notice your bias until somebody calls you out on it, right? It's yeah. very hard to look internally and see that bias. And then when someone calls you out on it, now we get back to that problem of defensiveness, right? So it's a really sticky, thorny issue to tackle. And I think it has to start with difficult conversations. And being willing to have them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. That's why it it takes practice because it doesn't feel good. (laughs) I mean, these conversations don't feel good. And again, thinking back to Kai riding a bike, if you use discomfort and fear as signals that you shouldn't be having the conversation, then you're never going to have the conversation. It's never going to be convenient. It's never going to be pleasant. But we don't have the conversations because they're easy or because they're fun. We have them because they're worth it and because they're necessary. So we have to really lean into them. Hey there, Conquerors. We want to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Studio 301. Kyle and his team have helped us redesign our website, taking the podcast in a new direction that we truly love. And we have some incredible guests here on the show. And Studio 301 has given us a website that reflects the caliber of the people that join us. And the Studio 301 team can help you with everything from brand strategy and redesigns to market research, videography, social media overhauls, and a whole lot more. You can go check them out at studio301.org. That's studio301.org. 
So you, you mentioned the mindset as one aspect of going in these conversations. You mentioned understanding the emotional side of things and, and what's going through people's mind or the person that you're talking to, make sure there's a relationship there. What other key fundamentals should people focus on when they're going into conversations like this? If they want to bring it up and they want to talk this out and, and get deeper with and connect deeper, I guess, with their feelings about the topic. Yeah. I think, again, keeping it simple, the, the framework that I use is called the Compassionate Curiosity Framework. It's from my book. And so it's simple and it's used in all difficult conversations, work, home, negotiation. And again, it's what I use to, to parent Kai. <laughs> and it's what I teach to lawyers and, and negotiators who are negotiating like nine figure deals. This, this is the foundation. And so step one is first acknowledging and validating emotions. Step two, getting curious with compassion. And then step three, joint problem solving. And so with step one, what we're doing is that once we see an emotion, we acknowledge it and then we validate it. So it, for, we use terms like it sounds like or it seems like. So it sounds like this was really tough for you. This had an impact on you. It sounds like you're really frustrated. Then when, when somebody accepts that label or, or recognizes it, it causes them to explain a little bit more. And then all you say is, after you summarize, you say, yeah, that makes sense. That's the validation part. We're letting them know they're not crazy for feeling that way. And we can acknowledge and validate emotions without agreeing. Mm -hmm. That's the beautiful thing. And then the next step, getting curious with compassion, we're asking questions. And I add that term compassion to make sure you do it while not sounding like a jerk. <laughs> so the person doesn't register it as a threat and pull back. And then the So what are you saying? <laughs> exactly. Just like that. <laughs> and so, and then the third part is joint problem solving. So now that we've worked through those emotional issues and we've gotten to a point where we've gathered information and got a better understanding of the situation, now we can work together to figure out what a solution is. Considering what we know now, what, what's, the, what's the, the path forward? And that's really it. It reminds me a little bit of the seven habits, Steve Covey. You know, the, the, one of the habits is seek first to understand, then to be understood. And it resonates with me because I really like that particular habit. I think it's super important to always, always, always try and understand before you start spouting your beliefs, right? Hey, where is this person coming from? And I think I, I really like the framework because of that. And I like, it just resonates with me a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. And think about it too. It's, you think about the prin principle of reciprocity. If you seek first to understand, then the person said, oh, well, you know, Josh took some time to, to hear me out. That's really nice. I, I wonder what he thinks. <laughs> it makes it more likely for them to listen because you've already done it to them first. It's almost a similar framework to any sales philosophy or sales training you could possibly go through. Like seeking first to understand, acknowledging their feelings, diving deeper, asking more questions. And then on the flip side, like you're describing mutually approaching the solution or joint problem solving together rather than, than pushing somewhere where you want to go, but you're kind of leading each other by the side. Um, and, and, and it seems that, because when you start pushing people in a certain direction, obviously you get a lot of defensiveness and then they start closing down the doors and then you start getting pushback and, and hostility. But if you guys can walk by the side, it sounds like what you're saying is that that's how you can facilitate the most productive conversations. Absolutely, yeah. I think about it in terms of physics too. You know how they say every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So when you're trying to make these points and really push hard against somebody else, their natural response is to push hard in the opposite direction. It's just how humans operate. That's it. And so if you, you change the game by approaching it in this way, asking questions, learning about the situation, the resistance and the aggression that they anticipated from the conversation isn't there. So it, it's a pattern breaking activity. Mm -hmm. And so usually people are following this script, point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint. Now it starts to get into this competitive type of situation where my winning necessitates your losing. And even if we get to a point where you say, oh man, he, he's right or she's right. there. Now it's so, so much about ego then you can't back down because mm -hmm. then you look silly, right? And so you want to avoid all of that by using this approach. My family loves that point-counterpoint approach. That's like our favorite approach at the dinner table. If my family's listening, I love you guys. And it's okay that we have arguments at the dinner table. But that being said, I think that, you know, one of the things that it, it, outside of just race, it also feels like we're divided along lines of politics, right? I feel like politically, right, right now, regardless of who you think should be in the office or not, we can all recognize that our country is extremely divided down political lines, more polarized than I ever remember being in my lifetime. And I think that everything we're talking about today applies to all of that as well, right? You gotta, you, we've gotta be able to reach across and say, hey, let's have a conversation, right? And assume that we all have the best intent 
for where we want to go with the country. Absolutely. And, and here's the thing. Well, you know the saying, all politics is local. Mm-hmm. When you think about power, a lot of that is localized too. When you think about the national side, unless you're a politician or you have a big pocketbook, um, there's very little that we can do other than vote as it relates to national politics. And based on our electoral college, sometimes your your state's vote doesn't even matter, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so, but when it comes to local stuff, hey, we can do something about that. When it comes to our workplace, hey, we can do something about that, right? When we when we become aware of the inequity that we see around us, now that it's local, now we can start to effectuate change. And when you start to make the problem smaller and focus in on on the structures around us that we actually have an impact, then we then we say, hey. I can actually do something about it. So here's an example. Um, a lot of the presentations now that I'm doing about how to have difficult conversations about race, corporate companies reaching out, a lot of it is uh, law firms reaching out. So quiz time. How many law firm partners would you say are black? Percentage-wise or Percentage wise. number? Percentage. All right. Well, it's, I think 11% of the United States is, is black. So I'm going to guess not enough. So I'm going to say 5%. Five percent. That's your guess, Josh. I'll go with two percent. Ooh, close. One point eight three percent. And you round up because I studied <laughs> math exactly. and I had the right answer. Exactly, Josh is right. You win the prize. <laughs> and so think about that. There's a problem there. There's a problem there. And so within the firms, a lot of firms are recognizing, hey, we have some diversity and inclusion issues, right? We have issues when it comes to promoting our black talent. We have issues when it comes to creating effective pipelines to make sure that we have a critical mass of people within our firm. Because even if you do that whole tokenism thing where we say, we have zero black people, now we have one, (laughs) right? Um, How does that person feel? Right. Right. It's it's very it's awkward. You don't feel at home, even though everybody's nice. That's the thing. Remember, we're not talking about interpersonal type of attacks here. Mm -hmm. It's within the structure of that organization. And so we have to really look at what we can do to create change, because within our, our workplaces, that's a major source of not only financial opportunity, power within the organization and the community, but also as a source of social interactions too. We want to make people feel welcome and that's the inclusivity portion. So there's stuff that we can do when it comes to these conversations about equity. And so we're not just having them just for the hell of it. We can actually say, hey, now we have a strategy, we have a framework. Let's use these conversations now to create real change in within our organizations. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. You know, it really couldn't be cooler to have a sponsor and a partner like One Columbus. They are directly in alignment with everything we stand for and everything we're looking to promote here at Conquering Columbus. I mean, they just want to bring the most competitive companies to the area and make everything about the city and the region just one of the greatest places to live in the United States and in the world for that matter. Yeah, they're like the ultimate Columbus hype man. They're trying to bring new businesses here, show them what our strengths are, but also address some of the weaknesses and say, like, this is how we could get better. So for us, we're excited to help promote their goal and help tell the story with them on board. Absolutely. And uh, if you guys want to learn more about One Columbus, check them out at columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. I think that's part of the struggle too, um, at least for me personally in some of these conversations, is that I think that when you start talking about Let's just talk about the problem with infrastructure and the fact the system obviously is clearly clearly flawed, but it's not an overnight thing. It's been years that it, that have built this, and I think that there are people that are even a part of the system, probably a good majority of them that have good intentions, like we talked about earlier. But the hate is kind of spewed on an organization or a person or a set of individuals rather than having the discussion around what the actual problem is. It feels like so. For example, take take a board that's full of, you know, white males. And it's like, you can hate the board, that's correct. But what what's the real, what? why don't we direct our hate to what the problem is and then focus our energy to get into the source of the problem. And I think that part of the struggle is not a lot of conversation that I'm hearing and, and it just be where my energy's focused is centered around finding the source of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about the the book, Getting to Yes, classic negotiation book. 
Um, they always say focus on separating the the people from the problem. If you just are you, if you can conflate the two, then the person feels attacked. They feel mm-hmm. they get defensive, and they don't necessarily want to go into the conversation being a barrier to change. But because change is associated with them as a person, they feel like they need to defend themselves and what they've what they've done in the past, right? But if we just say, listen, this is the problem. What can we do about it? Then people are a little bit more uh, receptive. And here's the thing too: I, I talk about the need for positive, persistent pressure, right? Where we can't put ourselves in a position where we are completely focused on making people feel comfortable. Because again, these conversations are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody has a right to comfort here when it comes to creating change. And it's going to take time, yes, but at the same time, we have to push people to move faster. Here's a great example. COVID provided us with an incredible example within structures of organizations. So think about how many people said, I will never work from home. My team will never work from home Hmm. because working from home will never work. Hey, pandemic came on us, right? (laughs) It's right right here. We We have no other choice. Oh, we have no choice. Boom, everybody working from home. Everybody saying, it's, you know, it wasn't my first choice, but we're we're actually making this work. That's a massive shift. Mm-hmm. And so organizations can make change very quickly if necessary. And so I think a lot of times when people are saying we need to slow down, it needs to take time, I, I would challenge that assumption. Because if we were forced into a COVID type of situation where change had to happen immediately, we would make the change and, and adjust. And so I think that's an important thing. There has to be a a sense of urgency when it comes to this. And when we're having these conversations, it's not just the back and forth. It's not just getting some good ideas down. It's actually getting people to commit to things that are meaningful with a timeline. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have a timeline, then you're always on time. Right. Or you get, you know, you get in that situation of like, well, I posted a black photo on my Instagram and (laughs) I felt good about myself. So I'm done. That's it. I did my job. Right. And, you know, I think that, you got to get past that. Oh, I feel good now. I did it. And you got to think, well, wait a minute. Did I really do anything here? And how can I, what, what can we do to help? So I think first off, go out and just ask questions and be curious. That's the first thing you can do. Absolutely. So, well, jumping into some lighter content here, (laughs) uh, what's going on in life outside of the negotiation, the American Negotiation Institute. What else is going on in, for you? Yeah, man. Well, Kai's four. He's a lot more interesting now um, as, a, you know, somebody who can reciprocate. He's got like a personality. Yes. You know. <laughs> yes. It's so much fun. So much fun. Like, for instance, yesterday. So yesterday, Kai had a blow up uh, at school. He got mad because somebody like pushed over a toy that he was playing with. So he pushed the boy. And um, so we heard about it. And so I'm trying to get Kai to calm down. He has a bit of a temper. So teaching him medica- meditation skills um, and uh, deep breaths and stuff like that. This is what you do. And so what we would do is we would role play. So I would intentionally say, hey, Kai, I'm going to make you mad. So let's say I, I do this to you. What are you going to do? And then he would say, okay, dad pushed me or whatever. I'm going to go to the corner. I'm going to do my deep breaths until I calm down. And so we'll actually go through that exercise. And so today, today I got an email from the teacher saying, Kai was really great today. Some of his friends got upset and he taught them how to calm down by doing deep breaths. I'm like, wow, there you this go, is man. incredible. That's got to feel good. Oh my God. That's got to feel good. So as good. Yeah, man. That's how, and that's awesome to hear. Like those are the stories that I like. And I, and I think that, you know, when you think about children, right. And uh, Shannon and I were, we were supposed to get married in June. Now we're getting married in September, but we're probably not going to even think about kids for you know, a couple of years. But I think when I think about like raising children, I think, man, you know, you can go the direction of like punishment, right. And telling your kid like that was wrong and all this. But I think that the way you handle, like the way you handle that is just so much, it's compassionate, right. And you and children are smarter than we think. Yes. Yeah. And that is what that t- story tells me. Cause Kai realized, Hey, you know what? I can, not only can I do this and learn it, but I can share it and help other people. Right. Yeah. And the, the, here's the thing is the compassionate curiosity framework. So, so Kai, tell me what happened at school today. Oh, it sounds like you were really upset. Yeah. I was really mad because he pushed over my toys. Yeah. It, that makes sense because you were working hard on building with those blocks. It, it makes sense that you're upset. So what do you think we can do next time? Okay. Well, next time, I guess I probably shouldn't p- push my friends. Okay, good. So when you get mad, what are you going to do? Kai raises himself. You know, mm-hmm. All I do is ask questions. And so a lot of times when it comes to difficult conversations in general, it's not about forcing the education down their throats. It's about asking the right question because they have the answer. They just don't know it. And so, again, 
this is the framework I use in all conversations. So what's interesting about the, yeah, I mean, you can know the framework and uh, I think I, I'm about to compliment you again and we already talked about you looking bigger earlier. So I don't want this, this whole <laughs> podcast interview to come across too creepy, but I think what I like about you so much as a person is that you seem to have like this, just you, I never met you when you're not like smiling, laughing, having fun with life. And I think the reason I bring that up is because you can take the framework that you talked about and you could say, yeah, I learned it, but if it's not part of your mindset and who you are, and if you don't totally embody it, you're still gonna try to drive people a square peg in a round hole. You're gonna drive, like Kai's gonna come home and you're gonna tell him, this is the way you're gonna do it next time. And maybe, maybe he listens because he respects you and you're his father. Or maybe he goes back and he rebels and he's upset. And when he's angry again and, and we immediately react, we immediately react with what's in our gut instinct. And if I don't internalize what somebody just said to me because it came across as demanding, then I'm not going to act upon it, which is you know preaching the choir here, I'm sure. But I, th I think where I'm going, actually, I don't know where I'm going, but I think where I'm going is that, <laughs> is that you have to, the framework is one thing, but if you internalize it and it's truly a part of the way that you can approach life and have fun with it and even have fun with these intense conversations. So, I mean, obviously racism is not fun. Talking about racism is not fun, but understanding that, you know, life is a, a really complex challenge and we have to be willing to, take our hand off of trying to control everything and approach it from like almost a more carefree mindset. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 And I think it's, um, I, I think about it this way. So I'm an, I'm an Island boy at heart, right? So uh, first generation Caribbean American. And so I think about it in terms of waves, I can't fight a wave, right? If I'm, if I'm in the ocean and a wave is coming at me, I can't push the wave in the other direction. The only I watched option, Mike fight a sink the other day. Water was coming out. He thought it was a wave. He was fighting the sink. <laughs> I swear on my life. In, in Ohio. <laughs> See, it was Josh goes to make a joke about me. I was going to say, I don't know, Kwame, with those arms, you might be able to push the wave. I appreciate it. Which would have been creepy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> tell you, the, the bulk worked out. It, but, um, but yeah, you have to let it go over you. You can't control it. You have to just roll with it. You have to roll with it. And I, I spend a lot of time trying to fight the waves. And then I realized this isn't helping. I'm not, I'm not winning these battles, number one. And number two, it doesn't feel good. Okay, great. And I remember watching this thing on uh, on Prince, uh, the the singer, and he was doing the Super Bowl one time, and uh, it was raining really hard. And you know, Prince, he has these really high heeled shoes, and he's going to do these moves and stuff like that. And so people are concerned. Oh my gosh, it's raining, and and you you're in these shoes. What should we do? And Prince said, "Let's try to make it rain harder." I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And it, it reminded me of a saying, um, I don't hope that the, the challenge gets easier. I just hope that I get better. And that's it. And so I think about it in terms of business. I'm a competitive guy. And I've learned that it's, it's a good thing at times, but I don't have that ability to say, all right, you know, this is a competition where I'm taking it easy. It's, it's on or off. <laughs> Either I win or, or we don't play, right? And so I'm like, okay, with some things I'm not going to compete. But then at those times where I, when I am competing, it's not just business, but it's also in relationships. I want to be the best dad. I don't want to be a good dad. I want to be the best dad, the best husband, all those things. So then when difficulties come, it's a different mindset. Again, just like with Kai, like I said, and just like with the difficult conversations. So when it happens, I say, oh, this is fantastic because this is an opportunity for me to grow. That's it. And that, uh, the something I talk about in the TED Talk, in the book all the time, like conflict is an opportunity. You just have to find it. It's an opportunity to learn. It's op an opportunity to make the world a better place, to create connection, right? Any difficulty, if you're creative enough, you can find a, an opportunity there. So I remember when COVID hit, this is ridiculous. The, in, so everything shut down in March. And so we just signed for um, a bigger office space in February because the calendar was booked, everything was great. And I, I remember saying to myself, this is fantastic, it's a no brainer. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what Man, that is like straight out of a movie. Like boom, here comes the thunderstorm. Exactly, exactly. And so I remember everything got canceled in March. Every single presentation canceled from March to mid-July. And I told my friend, I was like, Paul, I don't know how, but this pandemic is going to be the best thing that ever happened to the company. I don't know how it's going to happen. I'm sitting here at home with Kai, not working, relying completely on my team to handle everything. But I know somehow 
I'm going to make this work. And just that type of thinking, it, it changes your whole mindset. Because I think about it this way. I'm, I'm the author of my own life. We are the author of our own lives. I am incredibly biased in my favor. <laughs> and so whenever something challenging happens, in my mind, as the author, I say, and this was actually a good thing because, okay, now it's my job to try to figure out a way to make this work. What's the because? Exactly. And so it's gamifying life. That's really what it is. So when things are good, that's great. If things are bad, I'll figure it out. I know I will. And you just have to keep on believing and then it happens. Yeah. No, it makes complete sense. That's really, really great stuff, Kwame. So you know our question. Live, well, wait, before I go to Live Uncomfortably, Josh, you got anything else? Fresh out of questions. Fresh out of yeah. questions. All right. Well, so going to Live Uncomfortably, you've, you've heard the question before. It's the theme of our show, Live Uncomfortably. Do you think your perspective changed at all since we last talked to you on that particular topic? I think it's changed a little bit. And I think we're always evolving as people. And But I think what's most important is that the core has to stay the same. You know, your your perspective might change, your life experiences might change and, and all those type of things. But at a core level, I, I, I don't think you can or should try to change yourself at a core level, but it's just about trying to improve all those things. And I think now I'm at a point where I'm embracing the, the gamification of life a little bit more. Because before, I think challenges would have thrown me off because especially when it came to interpersonal challenges. Like if somebody treated me, like a friend treated me in a way that I thought was unfair or uh, something like that. I'm a, you, you know me, I'm a people person and I mm -hmm. want to try to give and help as much as I possibly can. And if somebody doesn't reciprocate or mistreats me, then I get really upset and, and really feel, you know, hurt by that. And it's not that I don't feel hurt now, but I just incorporate that into the competitive view that I have. Oh, okay, that's fine. I'll figure out a way around it. And I think one of the most powerful things in negotiation is the, the ability to walk away from a deal. Because I think about negotiation not as the art of deal making, but deal discovery. I'm going to go into this and try to find a deal. Sometimes the best answer is no, and that's okay. And you have to be willing, willing to walk away. You have to do that with relationships too sometimes, unfortunately. And now that I've adopted that type of mentality, I can make better strategic decisions, which relationships to have, which to let go. And um, if it's a challenge that I can try to use to improve the relationship, then I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to take it personally. It's just a competition, an opportunity to get better. Kwame, man, that was a great answer. And Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We really enjoyed talking hey, with you. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. It's always fun. And uh, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. Check out Kwame's podcast, Negotiate Anything. And uh, check out the American Negotiation Institute website link for that. AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com. There you go. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Oh.